All right, first things first, this is Brandon Flanagan. Brandon Flanagan. Flanagan, Flanagan, Flanagan. What a name. First time ever on a podcast. First time ever. Let's go back to Andy Fitzell, who's in Germany. For our listeners, thank you for your patience. We do now have the mics, and we got the great base tennis logo. We have a lot of content. Andy Fitzell has a background with all this, the lighting, the sound, editing. That certainly I don't have. And I said to Andy one time, I said, you know, we made lots of educational videos, little clip here, little clip there. I said, I've known him a long time, 25 years. I said, you probably, there's a few videos that you probably didn't like. And he said, I didn't like any of them. Because <laughs> the lighting was wrong, the camera was wrong. But let's go with this. Uh, Andres Barbosa was just here. We're in Boynton Beach, two and a half hours south of Orlando. And Andres, great friend from Miami, is here to interview one of our students. And he asked Brandon how long he had known me. And we came up with a math, 21 years. Let's start with your tennis. Uh, and Brandon is another upstate New Yorker. Two kinds of people in the world. Those from upstate New York and those who wish they were. Hicks and Slicks. Brandon is a hick like myself. But I was born in the very top of New York State in Potsdam, New York. Brandon is right there in the midsection, you know, when you bend over and they call it the rear end. <laughs> they used to say Albany, New York, and Troy is 10 miles up. But 21 years, let's start with taking lessons from the great Joe McMahon. Probably one of the best serves in history, I think. Better than better than Sampras, better than even Isovich, just one of the best serves. He could crack it. Yeah, he was, he was a really inspirational uh, tennis coach for me. Um, you know, coming from upstate New York, there weren't a lot of qualified Tennis, prof tennis professionals, but he had uh, you know spent some time with you in Rochester, where you taught him how to teach tennis, and or certainly improved his ability to teach tennis big time. And and so at 13, I joined a program that he was running at the Schenectady Racquet Club. And uh, after that, uh, two years in that program, he introduced me to to you, and I went down with a good friend of mine, still a good friend, Gabe Wapner. At Gabe baby, Gabe Wapner at 15. We uh, spent two weeks in Tampa at the Carrollwood Country Club, and uh, that was an interesting experience, to say the least. But uh, no, definitely, what what happened? I think with you know being introduced to you and and the the uh, the toughness, the, the tough love, so to speak, was was really huge for me to get that at that age, at fifteen. A little crazy love too. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was definitely uh, molded very quickly into um, into your approach on the court and. Uh, that was a big turning point for me. I, I really kind of played tennis socially. You know, upstate New York was not the easiest place in the world to to get on a tennis court. And um, thankfully, my grandmother put a racket in my hand at a young age and um, always enjoyed it. But uh, to really get the exposure to the the level of coaching, the level of players and intensity you had, and, and you know, that was a big turning point for me. So I know I've thanked you before, but thanks again for, for all that. Well, Joe McMahon will thank you for the thanks. With Joe became excellent at making slow motion videos. Our alumni, we need to connect with Joe McMahon. With, I mean, I sometimes just with students, I just go I, through my phone and the text messages and the emails I get in the course of a day. Um, but no, Joe, Joe, um, you know, he, he left tennis and came back to tennis and left tennis, came back to tennis, but. Um, in the tennis profession, we could talk about it. It's such a crazy 
Crazy profession. But, you know, I was working for uh, Alan Schwartz, uh, Doug Cash, Tennis Corporation of America. Um, everybody likes to go back home. So it was great to go back to upstate New York. With, um, tell us about, you went to Furman and um, Paul Scarpa. You talk a little bit about Paul Scarpa, another coach you worked with. Yeah, amazing guy. Um, he was at Furman, I believe, for close to 45 years. But during that time, he became the winningest uh, coach in NCAA history, I believe. Um, he might have been the winningest active coach, but he has he amassed uh, oh, hundreds and hundreds of wins in college tennis and just an absolute legend um, of, a, of a coach and of a, of a person, I think, personality-wise. He had so many different Paul Scarpa stories, but he carried a very big team. So, you know, coming out of high school, uh, spending a postgraduate year with you in Tampa, um, working on my game, it helped a lot, but I still didn't have any kind of, you know, significant ranking uh, and wasn't really being actively recruited by, by anyone. Uh, I had to seek out some prospects myself and had a couple different options, but it really stood out to me that Furman's facilities were, were great. Uh, they played a great out-of-conference schedule, uh, a lot of the SEC and ACC schools, and I was really intrigued by that. And then Coach Scarpa showed a lot of interest in me as a player, just you know, based on his record of developing some, you know, some uh, players who came in, like Ned Caswell, who came in as a basketball player at Furman. I think it was number thirteen out of thirteen guys in the team, and by the time he was a junior, was number one. And then he ended up, uh, you know, beating Patrick McEnroe at the NCAA's and. He, uh, he ended up becoming, I think, top 100 in the world. But he had a great track record of developing players while they were in college and just a really interesting guy. But, uh, but no, I, I, you know, I enjoyed my experience there, and, and uh, I would definitely do it all over again. Just a great, a great school, a great part of the world. I know. That's a, that's a lead into what you do now with your degree in what, exercise technology? Yeah, so uh, I have a degree in health and exercise science, and uh, the ed- education there was, was phenomenal and uh, a couple of great mentors in the you know, exercise science field. Uh, I remember Dr. Reed was a big mentor of mine, but, but, you know, as an athlete, I was definitely interested in the, you know, the physical side. And uh, so after graduating Furman, I, you know, shortly after found my way in Delray beach, Florida and um, met a couple of people uh, who owned a local gym and they encouraged me to get my professional certification as a personal trainer. And that led to uh you know, to me doing some off court work with some tennis players, um, just, you know, purely from a, you know, fitness standpoint. I remember with Paul Scarpa and our listeners, everybody loves Paul Scarpa. He was a really, really good player. Stayed, as you said, he was at Furman forever with, we sent him a video and he was just so impressed with the technical background, but, you know, having grown in up, upstate New York and not having played a lot of tennis, and then you had a lot of problems with injuries when you took that gap here, you almost, the whole year without being able to play. Right, without being able to serve, yeah. Yeah, with uh, the digress with Paul Scarpa. Do you, do you know the, the, uh, the Yahoo? Yeah. Go ahead, you know that story? Tell <laughs> that story. A great, it's a great story. So Paul Scarpa speaks like this. He's got a very deep Southern accent. And, gentleman. Uh, he's, he's a gentleman, gentleman and a scholar. But... Uh, Andy will have to tell you what movie that's from, but, um, but no, so Paul, uh, you know, coach Scarpa, um, he had kind of had some, some interesting, you know, uh, fortunate things happen in his life. One of them was he invested in Yahoo stock very early on, you know, before the, you know, the internet bubble. Um, 
in the stock market. And, and uh, one of the guys who was interested in that kind of thing asked him one day, said, coach, how did you have the, you know, the, the, the knowledge to invest so much of your money into Yahoo at such an early point? And he says, well, I just always thought it was a very delicious chocolatey drink. <laughs> that's funny. But that's kind of the guy. That's kind of the, that's, that's the kind of guy that he is, you know, just, uh, you know, very humble, humble kind of just Southern guy. One thing with Paul Scarpa, I tell young college coaches, have your own tennis camp. In all fairness to the Wilson camp and the Nike camp, have your own tennis camp. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with the late Don Meyer. Be at your camp every minute. Don't just be there for the registration and the, the farewell to the parents when they come and pick their kids up. But I know that uh, he's from the era where the coaches had a very small salary and they really had to make their money uh, running their camp. His camp was really, really well-known and well-run, and he was out there with the kids, and he would have all types of uh, games and, and you know teaching aids. And he'd bring out a, one of those small play school um, uh, basketball hoops and have kids you know work on, work on their serve with the basketball hoop. I never did work the camp, um, uh, although I wish I, I wish I did. It would have been a lot of fun, but... Uh, but no, he was he was out there on the court with the kids, and they would do all types of things, you know, from tennis skits to all types of different creative drills. But he was totally into it, and I think that's one one you know great thing to say about him as well as he was just as into running the summer camp as he was to coaching high level players on the on the tennis team. Um, yeah, I know somebody that you spent a lot of time with, Chad Berryhill. I made a presentation with Chad. We were just trying to boost his resume, and we made a presentation at the ITA. I mean, he started as a head coach with us when he was 22, a junior college program. And, um, yeah, we, we, we put a presentation on where your team and your camp, they're one and the same. And years ago, they were. You know, years ago, a college freshman didn't compete. They came in, and it's like Stan Smith with George Foley. He said, okay, that year I learned how to volley. Um, with Going back also to the prep year, when you took that year off, it was so different because the rule was that you could take a year off between high school and college. And some people would do it to improve their SAT scores, but also to improve their tennis. And the, the level of improvement that you and others made was really phenomenal. But now the rule is um, when you graduate from high school, you have a grace period of six months. And I mean, trust and verify. So the rules are forever changing. But now we have kids take the gap year. They really repeat grade eight. They don't repeat the academic work. Um, but tell us a little bit, just what a few things come to your mind with, uh, I, I know we could really digress. It would be so much fun to just talk, tell John Posey stories. One of your, he was there with you at that time, right? Yeah, yeah. I, we'll tell a few John Posey stories, but tell us what comes to your mind when you think of taking that gap year before you went to Furman. Oh, we would, we would put in some days. We would put in some serious days. We were there early in the morning. Uh, it was either at certain at certain points we were there at seven a.m. But you know, say it's eight a.m. and then we'd be feeding balls to the uh, local you know recreational adults until eight thirty at night at the Wanna Workout. <laughs> With um, no, we had it set up where it cost X plus, but if you were a student assistant, it cost X minus, and obviously most people did that, so it was a work study. But you were out of school, and some of you were still trying to improve your SAT scores, but it it was really so much different than now where now we have kids at different ages and they have homeschool. They have to, the non-traditional schooling, they have to do five, say five hours of schoolwork. 
All right. And with, um, yeah, I know Raven was there. Raven Clausen, he was on one of the podcasts. And I remember uh, Roberto Calla, who obviously was one of your coaches for a long time with us. And Raven was in the Wimbledon final. He said, how many people would know that he ran the dollar clinic? Yeah. I said, but before he ran the dollar clinic, he just had to observe and, and, and participate. <laughs> but what comes to your mind with that prep year, a year off? Oh, I think... Um... I think a lot of the, you know, for example, um, on one court, you would have someone like a Raven who at that time was, you know, still playing singles and was top, you know, 300 in the world. And he's on one court and the very next court, you have kind of a seven-year-old kid hitting off the cone, you know, and it's just, I don't think there's many other places that something like that really goes on, you know, to that level. But just to think of all the, all the young players now, um, we're, and we're working with Jackie Calla, you know, yeah endless hours in the court with her, you know, sock and cone and just building, uh, building the fundamentals and a lot of young players like her. Um, but it was, it was a great program. I mean, uh, you know, now local guy, Brent Wellman was, you know, he's in Delray beach. He was doing the fitness and great enthusiasm for tennis. Yeah. Yeah. Love transfer it. from basketball. Yeah. And so, um, no, I, I think, uh, you know, the HCC was, was kind of a hidden gem really. Um, and we could just go from the hard courts to the to the dirt field, and then <laughs> the clay twenty eight courts. courts. <laughs> yeah, huge place. It was on a college campus, so we had yep. a cafeteria, a library. So, uh, da- Jackie Callis, she played at Amherst, and actually, she likes to knit. And just last week, she sent me a pair of socks. There you go. And thanking me for helping her out over the years <laughs> um, with different experiences. Uh, talking about tennis camps, what about Harvard? We had Dave Fish on. I know you worked for Dave. You were his tennis director for a couple of summers. What was that like? Well, Harvard was was Harvard. I mean, it was really cool, um, of course, to be a part of that. But uh, to be on that campus in the summer, to be in Boston, um, the number of kids, the number of coaches. Uh, I mean, for me, it was a great experience. You know, both to you know to be the lead coach or the, they call it the director of the elite training program, thirteen to seventeen, then eventually to become the director of tennis of the whole program to run the orientation, to train the coaches. Um, that was a really, you know, positive experience for me to work alongside Dave and his wife, Bonnie, you know, super professional, organized, very smart. Um, and there's a really well run, you know, machine of a camp. And so a lot of the, you know, the, the, the level of tennis was at its highest when they brought over some kids internationally who were on a, they were more or less on a college, um, a uh, college tour of the, a lot of the, you know, the big time colleges in the U S and kids from Spain and Brazil. And, and, uh, so overall you had some of the stronger players in the Boston area, but it was more of a social camp for the, the majority of the 10 weeks. And so we would do uh, skits on a Friday and, and, uh, a lot of fun stuff like that. But just, yeah, that was a, it was a great experience. I know they used our curriculum for 12 years. The first five years I went and I used to tell people that I spoke during <clears throat> during the Harvard commencement for five years. It was Bill Gates one year. It was I was there, and, but no, it was a large group of people. I wasn't talking to the Harvard graduates, but there was forty coaches anyway. Right, right. No, I think I, I think there were thirty coaches in the room when I was you know, put on a. I think it was a two or three day orientation. I would just use. I would sync up videos from. I think it's your tennis intelligence applied course, and then I would talk about it, and then go to the next video and. And, yeah, uh, for our for our listeners, that, that course is still up online, greatbasetennis.com. The, the quality of filming, uh, <laughs> Andy wasn't there when we filmed Andy that. Andy does not approve. 
But I remember you went through that instead of using all 365 clips. You don't really need to do that. Right, right. Yeah, I can't remember exactly how many clips or which clips I used, but um, it was you know really helpful to have that. But uh, but yeah, also the the different people that I've met during that time, a lot of them are still involved in tennis. Some of them it was just kind of a they were college players, and it was just a summer gig. But uh, one of the guys um, is now. Uh, teaching pro in Delray as well, Adrian. I think you've met. Uh, yeah. He was on the staff there at Harvard, and and uh, and Vlad. Both Romanian guys, actually. Vlad is who you've met also too. He's he's out in Romania coaching tennis, hitting partner for Simona Halep, and and so um, so yeah, just a lot of great relationships and great experiences. I remember one summer I stayed with Dave and Bonnie, and they have two cars, and they gave me the directions to drive into Harvard, and. They were going in at 4 a.m. And they were being nice to me. He said, well, Steve, if you leave here at, at 7. I said, oh, okay. So I get to a toll bridge and I asked the guy, it was maybe before GPS, or I didn't know how to use GPS, one of the two. So I asked the, the gentleman at the toll gate, I said, how do you get to Harvard? And he had the answer. He goes, that's easy. Just study, study, study. <laughs> but that's, that's a magical place. Dave Fish, uh, great ambassador for tennis. And he's, you know, bleeding hard. He really feels for... You know, like our, our curriculum, he's a big supporter of it. We tease and we tell people, we were laughing about that earlier. Maybe it's, how's that go? It's, uh, we, we could be crying. Laughter turned inside out. It's really tragic that, you know, people go, are you great bass? I'm great bass. What do you think about being great bass? We tell people that every other month we're going to change the name of it to Solid Fundamentals. <laughs> yes, we're teaching Solid Fundamentals. I, just, I remember at Harvard as well, this, I think it's the oldest football stadium in America and uh, these massive steps and to run that stadium, that was an incredible workout. That was an incredible fitness uh, workout, but also too, I mean, another great, the second year that I went and uh, was the director of tennis, uh, uh, Dave introduced me to um, Dominic Moore. Okay. Yeah. And we would, I actually was coaching his wife uh, three times a week. Um, they, and and then I hit, hit with Dominic after he was a very good tennis player and someone who, think was part of Richard Hernandez's program in Toronto. Yeah, but he played so much hockey. Yeah. You know, Dominic, um, you know, Katie, who you taught, unfortunately, she played soccer. She she passed away at a very, very young age. But, you know, he had a great career in the NHL. But he was traded so many times. I mean, even though he's such a great player, he's traded many, many times. And, and every city he went to um, contact me, and we had someone trained in that city. Um, with, but with Dominic, I remember uh, working with Robert Steckley, who was very, very talented, same age group as uh, Roger Federer. And Roger Federer one time was assigned, because he didn't have a coach, Steckley at the Canadian Open. And Steckley um, had um, really kind of been off the, the, the radar, just hanging out in Toronto. And, and Roger said, I always wondered what happened to him. He had more talent than the rest of us. So anyway, I went up to... Uh, Dominic, and I said, tell you what, if you could quit hockey for four weeks and come and see me every day. You see that kid? He's number one in Canada. I'll get you to beat him. Because, uh, you know, he just had that Canadian mentality. But what happened with Dominic is, uh, and Richard's the one who really knows him well. Richard Hernandez grew up with the family, the three brothers. They all went to Harvard. As the grandfather was a really good hockey player, but he thought the sport was so rough. So the more boys, their father didn't play hockey. So hockey skipped a generation, but it, with the, the father said, okay, the boys can play. 
but I know he actually, I don't know if you know that, but he, um, he plays some national or some international ITF 35s. Oh, he does. No, he yeah. was, he was a good player. I mean, we had some, we had some good uh, hitting sessions for sure, but, uh, you know, it's just great to be anytime you can be around a professional athlete, just a different level of, of, uh, competitiveness and, you oh, know. you know, a million dollar player, but I remember going to uh, some of the lightning game with his former Katie's passed away. Um, you got to get ice time. And, and, you know, he, I think that he could have flourished even more if he, like any, like I think most every hockey player could say that, but that's, I like to go off on a tangent when we talk about ice hockey. <laughs> Trivia question. Bjorn Borg, Jan Tyriak. He asked, you know, who are two great tennis players who actually played a match? I think it was in Madison Square Garden. Both, they played on ice. Oh. Played a tennis match, wearing oh. skates. Well, you've been down in uh, this area um, 13 years, is that right? So I've known you 21. You said you've been here in South Florida. I think it's 13 years, yeah. My math could be bad there, but yeah, I've been down here, uh, you know, been down here a while. I've... Uh, I've uh, created a great, you know, relationship and partnership with, with, uh, you know, my, my business partner, Allington Mutimer. Um, we met kind of really day one of me moving down here and Mike Darcy was our director of tennis, our fearless, fearless leader at the Delray beach tennis center. And, um, I'm sure most people know that site from the professional tournament, but we really, you know, sh- showed up at the Delray beach tennis center around the same time in which coming out of the recession, the attendance at the junior program was more or less kind of one, one kid hitting on the backboard. And, um, you know, over time as the, you know, the, the landscape of the economy, you know, got stronger and, and the consistency of what we were doing in the junior program, the program really grew. And so, you know, building a relationship with Allington and, um, you know, learning a lot from him, he was, uh, an award, uh, I think he won a coach of a coach of year of the year award, um, going back to 2004 in England, um, but uh, he was a coach in Norwich, England for 20 years before he moved to the U S. And so I learned a lot from him on court as well. And, uh, after seven years at the Delray tennis center, we decided to take our show on the road and form our own business. And this is now kind of our second iteration of, of that business. But, um, but no, it's been, it's, you know, been a lot of fun, uh, a lot of great memories, relationships, working with people, adults, you know, kids, um, and, you know, training some coaches as well. So, it's great to circle back and and call myself a great baser. Allington uh, uh, loves the game. Um, he's a few years older than you. He's taught tennis a long time. Yeah, you know, he grew up. His mother was actually a tennis coach, um, and uh, he grew up playing. And I think around the age of fourteen, fifteen, he did stop playing. But then, uh, then he started coaching. You know, as an adult, and and uh, he had another Smith in his corner, Martin Smith, great lefty uh, British you know, tennis player and coach in that area. And so they had a lot of, you know, a lot of really talented, you know, the British players from that region. They were, I guess, technically a national training site, you know? Um, and so they would work with a lot of the top juniors in, in England. And of course, coming over here, he was shocked immediately by the level of, or the, the lack of the level of coaching in the U S he basically got the job at the Delray Tennis Center by walking past Atlantic Ave and he saw the junior clinic that was going on. And he just thought, this guy's coaching here. I'm pretty sure I can get a job. So he walked in and sure enough, he was hired as the assistant director to the tennis center. But, uh, and he's absolutely right. I think that 
the, you know, the ball has been dropped, you know, in terms of the education standards of a lot of people who teach. I think there's a lot of, of course, so many great coaches, but there's also many that really should not be coaching. Um, and the process for certification in England is just much more demanding. You know, what he had to go through to, to maintain his certification in England was much more than that you have to do in, in this country. No, we, we should definitely 100% talk to him about that. Certification is not education. We spent quite a bit of time talking about Dennis Vandermeer. And, you know, I'm a member of the USPTA, PTR, 40 years, give or take. I think more take <laughs> a lot of years. And in other words, add on at 40 plus with, it's a little bit too easy to make an understatement. You know, two days and $200 and you're certified. But yeah. at the same time, I think it's more than 50% of the people teaching now are not certified. Right. So I think if you want to be critical of the PTR in this country or critical of the USPTA, that you got to be on the inside. You have, you have to have gone through the test. You, you should really not even have a voice if you haven't gone through those programs. Mike Darcy. Um, yeah, this, all these names, just a shout out to Mike Darcy. Um, it's one thing with our, our alumni or network. He went to the two-year program that we've talked about, Tyler Junior College. So he came down and he, he was at, that's who, that was your in at the Delray Beach Tennis Center, correct? Correct, yeah. I guess you said that with uh, the Irishman. It works when you say about upstate New York. There's really two types of people <laughs> in the world, those from upstate New York and those who wish they were. But we um, have to really plug the Irish. So tell us about uh, Flanagan, 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 your parents, they blew it. Tell us that story. So I think we were in the van, of course, at one point, you know, most of our time was either spent on the tennis court or in the van driving somewhere back and forth on Dale Mabry Highway. But Did I have the heat up? Uh, the heat was on, cranking. It's 95 degrees. Yeah, it was and- a few years ago, <laughs> listeners. So when people would tell me it was too hot, if you, turn, if you turn, up, turn up the AC, I used to turn up the heat. I don't do that so much anymore. We got softer. Heat was cranking, 95 degrees outside in the van. And uh, Steve looks back in the rearview mirror and says, Flanagan, you know, your, your parents really screwed up. You know, nervous teenager thinking, what's he going to say now? You know, probably yelling at me for eating a pop tart when I shouldn't have been eating a pop tart. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully the nutritionist doesn't hear this, but, uh, but so no, he said, he said, you know, your, your parents really screwed up. They should have named you Brendan <laughs> instead of Brandon, which I think now looking back on it, you know, I think you're totally right, Steve, you know, Brent, you can change it for $20. I, I, think. I think, yeah, I think I'm going to go, you know, look into the, the paperwork. Brendan. Shanahan was a great yeah. hockey player. With, um, but our record is 17 languages. So a kid has a birthday, we get everybody in and we ham it up and we sing in 17 different languages. Even the tennis camp one is just where you sing loud. So, but for the most part, it's 17 languages. But I know as, as it go with you, stole a lot, stole a lot. So stole you're, stole you're, not, you're not 100% Irish. So my my mom's side is Polish, and so that was the the side of the family that was more, lived more locally. So a lot of the get-togethers for birthdays or what have you were we were singing "Sto lot, Sto lot." You know the history of Poland. I mean, so many tough things with the history of Poland. When I was a kid, we would drive through this town in upstate New York, going to a hockey hockey game, and my father used to always say, "You know, it depends what time of the year it is, but you know, especially if the, the snow wasn't up. But even if the snow was up, I mean." But the Polish people, he would just say, check out the gardens, check out the yards. I mean, every sidewalk, if it was during the, the, the 
the wintertime was snow. But he used to, he, my father used to just talk about the Polish people's work ethic every time we would drive through that town. Hardworking people. My mom's a very hardworking person. I mean, so is my dad. But, uh, but no, yeah, absolutely. Um, she would talk, uh, she still does talk a lot about her uh, grandmother, her Babcia. And she was, um, I think she directly emigrated from Poland. All the Poles after, you know, World War One, World War Two, and then how they were so strong with, you know, really fighting for the Catholic churches not to become government buildings. And with, uh, but tell us, uh, FM, with, uh, for me, I think of Fayetteville Manlius. Our listeners have heard me talk about Bill Aris, cross country coach, started as a volunteer, women's team. It's going to be one of the best cultures, one of the best cultures for sports in the U.S. Um, but, but FM, tell us about FM's new performance center. Sure. So FM stands for fundamentals. <laughs> so, uh, so no, FM is, is basically short for my last name and, and Allington's last name, but, uh, we ventured out on this, uh, this incredible project that, you know, we're really excited about, um, the FM tennis performance center. Uh, we have this, this, uh, beautiful space in Boyan beach, Florida, 6,200 square feet. And, um, and what we're trying to do here is just to, to, to help tennis players um, improve their games off the court, not just on the court. And so we have, uh, we have specialists for ranging from, of course, you know, f- you know fitness coaches, personal trainers, um, performance nutritionists, mental performance coaches, uh, physical therapy, massage therapy. So kind of the whole gamut of different you know, modalities and mediums that someone might need to improve their game, whether it's uh, recovering from an injury or injury, you know, prehab, as you might call it, uh, improving speed and agility, um, you know, even have a, a recovery room, hot and cold therapy and a, and a, and a dedicated area for, for hitting tennis balls indoors, kind of like a, you know, tennis version of a batting cage. But I think the, you know, the idea comes from really trying to be specific to what you're doing, you know, in the gym uh, or off the court to help improve your performance. And I think, you know, one of the best examples that I have, if, if you're looking to improve your fitness from a, you know, general standpoint, but you also play a lot of tennis, if you do happen to go to a personal trainer who doesn't know that much about tennis, their goals or their metrics of how they define your improvement in the gym uh, are probably different or sometimes can contrast with, you know, how, someone who has a more experience in the sport would help you. Um, for instance, you know, you know, being in the, in the fitness world myself and, you know, having a lot of friends who are personal trainers, of course, if they get you to increase your muscle mass and, you know, decrease your body fat percentage, you know, they're, of course, that's a great side effect of personal training and working out in the gym, but it depends if that is now, you know, a contraindication for, having a tennis related injury, you know, you're lifting too heavy in which now you've have tennis elbow, you know, and, and so I've seen that happen. And so I think it's just a matter of having a really specific brand of, of training that can not only increase your, your physical fitness, um, and, uh, but, but also improve your tennis. So you can do those two things, those two things at once. So you have multiple sites, you have private schools, you have private clubs, you have a municipality, which is, from your new fitness center, eight, eight tenths of a mile down the road. Talk a little bit about recreation tennis. I always, you know, think of recreation players, um, professional players, the forehands and forehands, just like you said, okay, we have advanced players on one court and a beginner on the next court. 
to talk a little bit more about catering to the recreational player. Sure. So we we focus a lot of our energy on working with the uh, you know, recreational demographic. Um, you know, players, you know, children or adults who probably aren't going to play more than a couple times a week. You know, for a few hours. Um, and I think it's pretty clear. You know, whether it's a uh, you know the the particular child or the adults, the amount of time they can dedicate to that, uh, how they're geared and what their goals are. But uh, it's pretty clear early on, you know, what path that that player is going to take. And, and I think where there's a huge void in the sport of tennis is you have so many of the qualified coaches, you know, that we talked about more of the qualified coaches are investing their energy in, you know, the advanced players, the ones who already are involved and have bought into the game and are supporting our sport. But I think where there needs to be more attention is qualified, reliable, you know, consistent um, coaches investing their energy into, you know, beginning players and beginning adults as well as beginning children. Because, um, you know, we, we, we all really want the same thing. You know, we, we want the sport of tennis to be in a healthy state in terms of, you know, viewership and participation and have to keep bringing new people into the, into the mix. You know, um, I, I think that the, the advanced players will find a way to keep playing, but a recreational beginner, if they don't like their first experience in the game, something I talked to Dave Fish a, a lot about recently is if they don't like their first experience, they're going to go try something else. And, uh, and so we were losing a lot of young kids and even, you know, young adults and, and, uh, and, you know, beginning adults because their first experience is not a positive one. So we've just tried to create different, different ways to have uh, positive experiences for, for, you know, beginning and intermediate players and even, you know, of course, advanced players too. But, but like I said, they've already gotten to that point where they've bought in. With uh, Boca, 48 years ago, I got an airplane, 19 years old. It was a crazy idea. I was almost 20. Is it going to start a journey in tennis and, become a tennis teaching professional. You know, I've had many students that have been, you know, 30 plus years at a country club, when, you know, hats off. I don't want to take anything away from someone in that position, but sometimes, you know, to, to be at a club in Boca, it's a pretty subservient role. And I think, you know, Delray, Boynton Beach, uh, you know, the haves and the have nots, but with um, loyalty, tell us about junior tennis. I mean, I've heard it said about this area, if, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. I don't think that's necessarily true at, say, a, client, a private club if you have great people skills and you're a little bit of a politician. But out there working with juniors, the loyalty, is there still, I mean, is this still the number one place for shopping and bopping? And, and there's so much tennis here. Is there's so much confusion here? What are your comments on that? Yeah, I think there's a, there's, there is a, a certain lack of loyalty. Um, you know, in here, just like there probably is many, many places. I think if you can throw a stone, you know, you're going to hit another kind of quote unquote tennis academy from where you stand. And I think that's just talking to Allington about that. That was never an issue for him back home because the, the, the places, the locations, you know, weren't as, weren't as available to someone growing up in, you know, in, in Northern England. Um, I think he's from Northern England. <laughs> I can't, don't know my geography too well, but, but uh, no, I mean, there's so many different places to play here. And what I've found now is that the larger academies um, are having a harder time. And then you see that these kind of smaller niche academies, you know, four players, six players, you know, one, one or two coaches um, are, are kind of popping up and, 
simple for them. You know, they can just rent a court or two courts somewhere and uh, they don't need to have an entire facility at their disposal and uh, they'll travel with those kids to tournaments and very specialized. And so at least from my experience, what I've seen is the, the days of a huge, huge kind of like how Terry's Academy was in the eighties. I don't know if we'll see that again, hundreds of kids. You know, years and years ago in Florida, going back to the seventies, there was all these municipalities. You just go down, you know, Miami and say, okay, Flamingo Park, North Miami, I think David Park, you know, now the Jimmy Everett Tennis Center, Holiday Park. And the players usually just congregate. Uh, I know a gentleman used to say there's 20 people here on any given day and compete in 20 different ways. But what's, what happens when a, a, a golf course is developed, you know, the, the luxury homes are put in, the townhouses are put in. Sometimes, you know, tennis, hate to say we're just an amenity to golf. And there's six courts here and six courts there. And um, it, I think it was much healthier. And that's one good thing about indoor tennis. Um, there's only so many indoor tennis clubs. So people come in and they actually can see what everybody's doing. But here in Florida, especially it's, it's the land of the car trunk pro. Right. Is you don't really have a very good idea of what everyone's doing. So uh, I find that the consumer can, it can just be saturated. It's just so much tennis. It's hard to, you know, have consumer awareness. Yeah, and there was a there was a period of time, of course, in Delray, we in at the Delray Tennis Center, we were building up this junior program and got to the point where the kids were winning tournaments and they were progressing and they were doing really well. And then uh, as we went out on our own, we are at Indian Spring Country Club just down the road in Boynton Beach. As we went out on our own, you know, under the name of an academy, uh, the Flanagan Mutimer Tennis Academy, a mouthful, but um, you know, we did still work with a lot of you know. And I don't love the word, but high performance players. And, uh, you know, we just felt, we felt that that was a part of the market that was really saturated. There were a lot of qualified coaches vying for a very few number of kids. And it's just like, like I said before, I think from a big picture standpoint, it's just not healthy for the game of tennis. More, we need more qualified coaches working with, working with the beginners. Yeah. We talked about this earlier with Julian Krinsky, great guy great friend for a long time. I was hired by him in the eighties to train his staff up in Philadelphia. He used to have a huge, huge tennis camp. And he used to say that 95% of the pros are chasing 5% of the business. And instead of flipping around where it's, you know, uh, to be, you know, 5% of the pros chasing 95% of the business, you know, to coach that next champion, everyone's a champion. You know, everyone should just be given the best instruction and I think that's where it's the, you know, we repeat ourselves often here, the merchant of flash, the third base coach, the person who's out there hustling the kid who can already score. Tennis would be so much healthier if people were really good at teaching beginners. And it's, it's, it's a very difficult, difficult sport. Um, with, um, so to walk through the FM Performance Center, you know, it's got a really good vibe, a little photo of John McEnroe and old school and Bjorn Borg. But so you walk in, you have an office, and then you have room for PTs, physical therapists. Then you have across the hall, you have the ice room. Mm -hmm. right? the, and then you have um, a large area for the fitness crew. Yep. And then you have sports psychologists, nutritionists, and a masseuse. We also have yoga. Yeah, we have uh yeah. Interesting tennis specific yoga. 
So just to focus on, you know, the, the muscle groups um, that tennis players are having trouble with in terms of flexibility and, and even stability and strength, a lot of that core core strength and stability from yoga training as well. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great crew, great team, amazing people, super qualified, motivated. Um, and they're all passionate about helping, helping adult athletes, youth athletes. They're passionate about it. So it's just, it's really worked out in terms of getting that team together and, and, uh, yeah, so really excited to, to get started. Last question. I mean, we'll follow up and get a chance to talk to the the team you have in place. Um, tell us about the McEnroe Borg t-shirt. So, uh, so yeah, McEnroe Borg 1980 U S open turning point in both players careers. I think is that yeah from a tennis historian historian standpoint um yeah i don't think bjorn borg was ever really the same i think you know johnny johnny mack winning that match um so yeah just that's uh it's a playoff the reagan bush uh ad from 84 but uh it's a, that was a big that was a big match and just just a fun way to to uh fun way to get a t-shirt design out there no that's good um yeah we'll have to come back i mean posy stories um you know, Andy's always telling us, we, you know, we want to try to give out value with our podcasts. So we want to, we want to just talk about Posey stories. Um, but give us one Posey story. Posey's a guy who got cut from his Division Three team, came to work with us, and grinded it out. And everybody loves Posey. Actually, his first name is John, but no one ever calls him John. Give us a Posey story. Just, just put, Posey. You on the, put you on the spot. Here's a Posey story. So he was always he was always trying to find a way to get better, right? So he had, but he he still had this nineteen uh, nineteen late nineteen eighties Pete Sampras racket, eighty five square inches. I think eventually we convinced him to get a Babolat just to try to modernize his game a little bit. But but uh, no, he he's always trying to find a way to get better. And one time he kind of looks me square in the eyes, so serious. He goes, "Yeah, I just think that if I could invent a new <laughs> shot that no one else has thought of." I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be a tough one, but uh, I think he's still working on it. With uh, Posey. Guy could read a snowstorm. But no, thanks a lot. We look forward to uh, talking to you more about what you're doing and also your team. But anyway, adios, amigos. Adios. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.